Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, uh, we have a a great topic. Uh, We're going to be discussing the Erie Canal and its records with uh, Pamela Vittorio. And uh, we've talked about the Erie Canal before, the Erie Canal Museum, but today we're going to be focusing on the records that were generated in the creation of the canal and uh, the use of the canal itself. Um, So uh, Pamela uh, is a noted expert on the Erie Canal. I met her uh, within the last year when she was speaking for the Association of Professional Genealogists meeting uh, in the New York Metro uh, meeting. And her topic, of course, was the Erie Canal. And she has since given a few more talks on the Erie Canal, in particular at the New York State Family History Conference in Syracuse uh, this past September, and then also recently gave a talk on uh, rebel prisoners who were taken captive and uh, taken to Canada during the American Revolution. Uh, so Pamela has a great interest in uh, genealogy. Uh, she is a, oh, she's actually going to tell us, she is a professor. And uh, so it's, it's great to have you on the show, Pamela. Thank you, Jane. I'm really glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad you're here, too. So will you let, tell us about yourself, where you were born, raised, your education, and your uh, careers? Well, I was born in Syracuse and lived very briefly at the beginning of my life in Fayetteville, but then moved to the town of Sullivan, which is sort of on the outlier of Chittenango Village. Uh, If people know where Chittenango is, I think most people can't even spell it. Um, But we're in central New York State, almost smack dab in the middle. And uh, I lived in a little apartment right along the main route of Chittenango as a child, which actually is the vestige of the old Chittenango Canal. And then I ended up going to the town of Sullivan and grew up across from the enlarged Erie Canal. So I guess I was just meant to be near canals. I studied uh, English and performing arts at SUNY Geneseo, and then I moved to New York City for graduate school, and I've always liked history, uh, linguistics, teaching. So for my career, I have, um, I've been in the field of uh, English language training for a long time. I teach at Parsons School of Design, the new school here in New York City. And I write uh, English language training books and make educational films for people who want to learn English and to live abroad. I've, oh, um, very, in- 
Yeah, I've always say, loved very interesting. I did not well, know that. So. Okay. Okay. So your your focus is linguistics in your career. Um, basically, yes. But I I studied history as in my graduate degree. I I studied Middle Eastern history actually. <laughs> very and languages: Arabic, Persian, Turkish, Hebrew. Okay. All right. So then, how how did you get interested in genealogy with this uh, with this background? Well, I think it was probably osmosis because my maternal grandmother lived with us when I was growing up, and also my great aunt, her sister, was always with us, and we always had big family reunions on both sides of my family. So I was very fortunate. I knew all my great aunts and uncles, and I even knew my great grandmother and my great great grandmother. So I suppose I was always curious, and I asked a lot of questions. I was precocious. And around 10, I started doing family charts of, like, everyone that my grandmother and my great-aunt knew or could remember in our family going as far back as they could go. And I still have those little pages with my 10-year-old handwriting on them. And they're kind of my own little, uh, I don't know, my own little archive of, of our family history. And then you mentioned uh, the Erie Canal. Uh, what was the draw for now teaching about it, as, as you do with local uh, genealogies and historical societies? Well, I think, you know, if if you grow up in a certain place and it, and it means a lot to you, the canal, for example, has always been in my life, I think, uh, because the banks and the towpath were my childhood playground. I fished and rode my bicycle and I could be out all day and go to Canastota or Manlius. It was just something special about it. Like the, I think the ghost of boatmen just seemed to float by me as I was riding my bike and call out to me. And it was a magical, mysterious sort of place. So for some reason I felt that the stories needed to be told and probably 15 years ago or more, I started volunteering at the Chittenango Landing Canal Boat Museum maybe 20 years, I forget, but it's been a long time. And therefore, I just sort of started to incorporate my love of history and genealogy into, um, you know, researching the people who may have been forgotten on the Erie Canal, which New York State would really not be New York State without. Absolutely. So to get us into our topic, will you give us a, a, a brief history of the canal and actually uh there in the history of new york state there actually are three um so will you just kind of give us an overview i think it is a a little known fact among people who aren't canal buffs that there were three canals um and it seems to be a surprising fact but as everyone knows the first one which held the moniker clinton's ditch and and other sort of pejoratives for a long time. The idea for that was begun as early, I think, as the 1780s. And uh, during the the presidency of Jefferson, and, and President Jefferson was not a, a canal supporter. In fact, I think he called it a little short of madness. He thought that the whole idea of constructing a waterway through the wilderness, 360-odd miles, was ridiculous and not practical. And, of course, Around 1806, I think, 1807, some of the early canal supporters, names that most people don't know, like Joshua Foreman and Cadwallader Colden and 
Elkanah Watson, who himself often took credit for having the idea of the canal first, and Governor Morris, who most people in upstate New York would know because Governor is named after him, and uh, Morrisania in the Bronx is named after him, and a man named Jesse Hawley, who actually even wrote letters in support of the canal from prison. I mean, all those names, and you know, people would be uh, sort of remiss not to include them along with Governor Clinton in the history of the canal. But it took more than 30 years to get the government on board, basically, and money and doing something for public works and going through um, the land owned by farmers or, or patents held and, and lands that were owned by Native Americans uh, created a lot of obstacles. But let's face it, the proposal was $7 million to build it, and they carried it out, and it took them from you know, the first striking of ground in Rome in 1817 until 1825. But it was already in use in the early 1820s, even 1819, as early as 1819. So, I mean, it was beneficial uh, even after a couple of years. And they met their budget. So what they proposed and what they carried out were really monumental for us. So... How did it all come together? How did it all come together? Well, obviously, I think the the myth that the Irish dug the Erie has been controversial amongst canal historians. And, and there's this understanding amongst people who are experts and people who know far more than I do that because there were three canals, the division of labor between locals and immigrants uh, needs to be noted. And the first canal, the Clinton Stitch that we all know and love, that we're about to celebrate, was mainly dug by local men. And very few of them had Irish last names. And if they did, they were from families who'd been living in central New York State or eastern New York State or western New York State for a long time, several generations. So for example, if you look in the Mohawk Valley area, a lot of the men who whose names appear on receipts that are at the New York State Archives are old Dutch names. Uh, their families had had land there for several generations predating the Revolutionary War. And, um, and I don't think that we could credit the Irish for the digging of canal, although... If you read newspapers from that time period, there are there are accounts that give credit to Irish navvies who perhaps were coming over to to dig to do some canal labor, maybe working as axemen, uh, building building as masons, etc. But not as early as people think. I would say that would start around the 1830s. 1833-34, during the time of the Enlarged Canal. Okay. And so the, when when was the first, or this may not be have been recorded, but when, when was the first section dug for the Erie Canal? Um, well, they broke ground at Rome in 1817 on 4th of July, fitting, 
And by October of the following year, I think they had 15 miles dug in one direction. And then that was toward the Eastern Division. And then they dug another 95 miles in a Western section, which is the long level toward Syracuse. Um, So Chittenango being right smack in the middle was probably one of the first places where boats were built and they had a landing. Um, The founder of Chittenango, whose name was John B. Yates, also originally from the Mohawk Valley, uh, he was a big proponent of the canal. And one of the things he did was he he supported in 1818 legislation to pass uh, a bill to get a little canal constructed in Chittenango. So we had a dry dock there very early on and therefore a line of boats. So in Utica and Chittenango and heading toward Albany, there was early traffic. Even as far out as Montezuma, there was a line of, of boats for passengers. And those are the records, the earliest records that we find in the archives for passengers are from 1828 uh, in that area, 27 to 29. So uh, unfortunately, we don't have more than that. We don't have early ones, and we don't have any that are later later than that, 1830s. Um, so it- but we do find some from Chittenango and, and Utica and, uh, and that area very early on. Okay. So... When they broke ground and after they had done the, that middle portion, did they actually start to use it? Was there water and then? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was just saying. Like the the first boat that they used was about 1819, okay. um, the, the chief engineer of Rome. And, of course, the canal commissioners are the ones that took the first rides. But as I said, the Chittenango Landing had its own fleet and, uh, Utica had a fleet, Montezuma had a little fleet, uh, there were some that went over to Unadilla, and so in the 1820s, way before the canal was finished, there were already people moving along the canal and people uh, transporting goods and commodities back and forth. Okay, and you mentioned the term dry docks, will you explain what that is? Mm-hmm. There are a few dry docks that are still in existence along the canal. The dry docks are Places sometimes there are three bays, sometimes two. Chittenango Landing is very fortunate because we have three bays uh, where boats could come in and dock and be worked on or built. And if you visit Chittenango Landing Canal Boat Museum, we have a, a very large photograph that was found in an attic of someone's home in the 80s, 90s, and. Uh, and it shows probably seven boats being worked on at the same time, some being constructed, some being repaired. We have an industrial building there where there's a blacksmith. So the one at Chittenango, the one at Durhamville, and there were other small ones along the canal. I think there were over 40 or more. Uh, don't quote me on that. But a man named Daniel Weiscotton uh, was the expert on dry docks along the canal, and he wrote a lot on them in the 90s, 80s, and 90s, and some of his work can be found at the CLCBM. But the dry docks were really, I think, one of the most important sort of stations because it's where if your boat was re- 
uh, in need of repair, you could dock there. There was always a store warehouse. There was a farrier or a blacksmith if your mule or horse needed shoeing. Um, and actually, that was a, a way station for you know places, a place where people could get off and either go over to a train or get a stagecoach elsewhere. So it was a little transportation hub having a dry dock. And when I say way station, I mean W-A-Y, not W-E-I-G-H, like in Syracuse where the waymasters were weighing the boats, um, just to be clear on that. Okay. And you mentioned uh, CLCBM, and that's the uh, mm-hmm. just for clarification, Chittenango Landing yeah. Canal Boat Museum, which we will be talking more about right. uh, later on. Okay, so then when when was the canal completed? So the first canal was completed in 1825. But then, not even 10 years later, because of railroad trains, the canal commissioners proposed expanding the canal. So enlarging it was probably one of the most important things they had to decide to do, and it took them a long time because of finances, obviously. It was a stop-and-start, stop-and-start type of business. But, you know, their heyday, the canal's heyday, probably lasted in terms of transporting people and commodities back and forth between Albany and Buffalo and to New York City until about the 1850s. And then the packet boat was really rarely seen. Uh, People could still ride for leisure, but... People took line boats, which also had freight on them and were much cheaper. Uh, And it it just gave way to railroads, which was much more logical in terms of passenger transportation. But canal proponents were obviously unhappy and called the railroad the canal killer. And ironically, one of the first engines was called the DeWitt Clinton. So there you go. But it took a long time to complete the expansion, in fact, when the enlarged canal was constructed, it, it was parallel to the old canal in sections. It canalized the old canal in sections, meaning it accommodated that portion of the canal. And then it was uh, the route was changed to straighten it out because the first canal was very, you know, windy and zigzaggy, cutting through a lot of the the rock and and wilderness of central New York State, and especially over toward the western section. Uh, and it, it wasn't completed until 1862. So you can see from 1833-34 to 1862 is a very long time. And as the Civil War was brewing, I think it was fortuitous because they held the idea that to expand the locks on the canal to accommodate gunboats may be a, a useful thing to do. And obviously later on, the canal did play a role in the Civil War. Some say in in actually instigating it, but obviously it was important in its role in uh, transporting ammunition and and goods. So it had, you know, the second canal had a a specific role that was different from the original. And I think because it transported, uh, people were able to transport things like pottery and grain and ammunition, that's what made the enlarged canal special in terms of uh, commodities because it was much safer to move pottery on a canal boat than it was on a railroad or ammunition for that matter. Sure, sure. Um, and two questions. Uh, you said that some people think the canal instigated the Civil War. How, how so? 
Well, that's a you know that's a very controversial topic too. But um, some of the things I've read, people have thought that because it was taking you know money from the coffers and public works as it was you know ex- expense in enlarging the canal or finishing it, completing it. Um, and then, of course, because it was diverting the way goods could be transported, and basically, I mean, if you see the the map of all the canals in the eastern part of the states and into the, the Midwest, it, it created this wonderful network uh, that could be navigated by the boatmen, and you you could sort of circumnavigate in a different way or internally navigate and not have to worry about moving things down the coast of the Atlantic and all the way down to New Orleans from that direction. You could take the boats and then transport goods and move them to steamboats. And so, therefore, it was going to facilitate and, and cut off the the money that other companies were making in terms of shipping goods. So I think that there is some credence in some of those theories but that's a whole other topic <laughs> sure which we, which we just just got a taste of and then the second yeah. question exactly how was the canal expanded uh, well pretty much in the same way that they built the first one except that they had a little better technology but you know there were always all these things that they used um, to dig with different sort of devices men who were hired to dig, and then during the expansion, this is where the idea of the Irish diggers comes in because there were people who were hired living in these little shanty towns along the canal, but but they were more like migrant workers. When they completed a project in a specific area, then they picked up and they they could go elsewhere for work. And so if a mason was constructing something in one area of the canal, he may have picked up and moved somewhere else to work on an aqueduct or work, you know, maybe even on a cobblestone house. Uh, it, it didn't mean that they were going to be following the whole line of the canals all the way from central New York State to Albany or central New York State to Buffalo as they built it in those sections. So, Okay. And then it was, it was uh, deepened and widened? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the first canal was only four feet deep um, and you know the the boats that went through were about I'd say 14 feet wide so you know it had a, a 28 foot prism um, and then it expanded to 70 by 40 by 7 which you know was much better in terms of uh, taking longer and bigger boats through thus having more commodities and uh, and goods to be able to to transport back and forth. Okay. All right. And then the the last uh, canal. Uh, so you said the heyday for the, or actually, I'm sorry, the expanded canal was completed in 1862. When did mm-hmm. we get the barge canal? Oh, barge is very is very modern, I would say, because the the barge canal, the ideas for even expanding the enlarged canal. I think started as early as the 1880s and 1890s. And then the barge canal, the digging for it started, I guess, about 1905, 06. And, uh, of course, you know, it was 
it was the whole idea was to expand it and therefore accommodate steam-powered ships and steel ships and probably much like the Welling Canal in Canada is today, um, the the concept was if the canal was going to survive and, and we were still going to be able to use this waterway to move goods from New York City to the Great Lakes, that was going to be a better way to do it and and more efficient way to do it. And, and you know, the mule was only going to last so long anyway after things like uh, motor vehicles were begun. So it, it was sort of a natural progression. And then when the barge was completed in 1918, the old area was basically used for, I guess, a canal colony. Uh, there were little canal colonies of people, boatmen, who just still lived on their boats. And... And the enlarged canal, I think local local people still used it, ran their boats back and forth, you know, just maybe between local places like Chittenango and Canastoto or Macedon and Palmyra or something, and then uh, had little little steamboat docks where they had steamboats and landings. And we even had a former Chittenango mayor from the early 1900s who had worked at our industrial building on the dry docks and then... He had his own little fleet of canal boats and then steamboats, and he was still using it in the 1920s, as far as we know, to transport goods. So the idea that it was completely out of use isn't true, but I would say since so much of the first canal became obsolete and then were filled in, and then the second canal started to be filled in to make way for the New York Thruway in the 50s, uh, of course, you could still find vestiges of the old canal. There's one right near Chittenango, obviously. And then the enlarged canal where you can ride the towpath. And so now they're mostly recreational uh, entities in New York State. The Erie Canal, you know, corridor, as they call it. Okay. And wh- what is the course of the barge canal? You know, I'm I'm not an expert on the barge canal by any means, but um, it's much, much longer because it incorporates so many other waterways. Um, I think it's some, something over, you know, 500 miles uh, if you count all of its twists and turns, but it, it did a, it did have new locks and then incorporate some of the old locks. It does follow some of the old routes of the enlarged canal. Um, and you can take a recreational boat on the barge canal and go through the locks. And I would always recommend that people do that if they can once. Like the Palmyra Macedon area is probably, to me, the epitome of, of what canal travel once looked like. Wow. It's, it's so very beautiful. The barge canal also runs from Albany to Buffalo? Yeah, it starts, uh, it starts thereabouts and then... Uh, the big ships can go up the Hudson and pass pass through. But I'm not a specialist on the Barge Canal. And, and Erie Canal people really don't even, I mean, I guess since they changed the name of it to the, the Erie Barge Canal or Erie Canal a couple years ago. Um, but we don't, because it's so modern, we don't tend to think of it in the same way as we think of the old canal and the enlarged canal just because it's a, it's still in use, and it's a it's a way for commercial ship traffic to move. Like the I would again compare it to the Welland Canal in 
in Canada, the Welland Canal had the first Welland Canal, which was actually even uh, deported by John D. Yates, who was the Chittenango Canal creator. Um, so we have that little sister canal there. But then they expanded theirs twice as well, and now they have this fabulous ship and recreation canal in Canada that is very comparable to the Barge Canal. But it's, to me, it's a very different sort of entity because of its, um, you know, its history was not for passenger travel. It was for the freight. Okay. All right. So we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the records that were generated sure. uh, with these canals. So um, we'll be right back. Okay, great. Forget Me Not Hour, Your Ancestors Want Their Stories to Be Told. As you are listening on Blog Talk Radio, you will see a follow button. If you press the button, you'll receive an email letting you know the show is going on the air, what the topic is, and who the guest is. Um, you'll also see a bunch of social media buttons. Uh, please share the Forget Me Not Hour with your friends and family on uh, your social media pages. Uh, the Forget Me Not Hour is also on iTunes, and you can catch it uh, under Jane E. Wilcox and take the Forget-Me-Not Hour on the go with you. And then you'll find the Forget-Me-Not Hour archives on Blog Talk. Uh, the Forget-Me-Not Hour this month, November, is celebrating its anniversary. The first show aired on WHVW uh, in Poughkeepsie in November of 2010. And so uh, this is a, a wonderful milestone for the show. Uh, uh, finishing our uh, 
I think it's six years now on the air. Uh, so please take advantage of the shows that are in the archives. The uh, WHBW shows were broadcast on Blog Talk Radio, and they are uh, wonderful, timeless shows. So please take advantage. Today, we are talking about the Erie Canal and its records, and my guest is Pamela Vittorio. Um, so, Pamela, we've, we've got a great history, an idea of what happened with the Erie Canal, uh, the enlarged canal, and then the barge canal. So, we have different phases. We have digging and, and uh, building and, and just and using. So, what types of records were created? Uh, well, if we if we really want to talk about records, we we can't actually discuss records without saying something about a mighty chain, which is the finding aid you you will discover at the New York State Archives, um, and that document is over 100 pages long, and it lists all of the canal records that are available in Albany at the New York State Archives. Um, and really documents the early history of the canal through the Barge Canal. And even going back to the days before they started digging, because there were little what they called inland lock navigation companies that were in existence between the 1790s and and early 1800s. Um, So even before the canal, the first shovel of earth was, uh, was dug out, there were other smaller canals that helped uh, bateau boats navigate back and forth on the rivers and um, in between places, especially in central New York State and uh, and thereabouts. So the records themselves um, go back to the early time period. The canal commissioners, there were five in the beginning, um, and they basically held documents that were monetary receipts of tolls on the canal. So when a, a boatman passed through um, and, uh, and was cleared, received clearance at a, a lock or a way station, the, they would get a receipt for how much their boat weighed or what was on it or how many passengers, et cetera, was on the, were on the boat. Um, there are tax records for the lands adjacent to the canal. Um, freight tolls. There are, oh my gosh, so many claims. Um, things that are really useful for genealogists are are the records that have receipts to laborers. So I would suggest to anybody who visits the archives, uh, check those out. Some of them are in very poor condition, but they're extremely useful. Um, we can see who held the contracts because in the early days there were agents. And then under those agents, there were men who were digging, constructing perhaps a a bridge, um, clearing something out, um, working on an aqueduct, doing stonework, and, of course, surveyors and survey maps. And for genealogists, those are extremely useful as well because on the survey maps, you can actually see who the landowners were in the vicinity of the canal. So you can match sometimes the name of an agent and the land through which the canal uh, was was dug and then go to his land records and, and find out exactly 
where his land was and his deed. And I've been able to connect many uh, early canal workers and agents in that way. Uh, I would also say that you may find some things that are a little more surprising in the records, like what was in a canal superintendent's office or or any canal official's office. Sometimes they had to keep inventories of what was what was in their office before as the incumbent before the next person came in. So you'll find how many books they had, what books were on their shelves, uh, if they had a what type of desk, uh, if they had some pottery sitting in their office or or something else. I mean, just fascinating artifacts that are listed that were owned by these people. Um, I found things that went back to the very early days of Chittenango, and I can't help but mention it because it's, to me it's fascinating to find out early history of a place that you grew up in. But documents between the founder of Chittenango, John B. Yates, and some of the men who were the first to build boats there and then move commodities back and forth or freight back and forth between Chittenango and, and Albany or Chittenango and Buffalo. Um, the the man Canvas White, who gets credited with the discovery of hydraulic cement, well, going through the records, you can find receipts for transactions of that he was doing, where he stayed, what he ate, um, receipts for meals that he had, and all kinds of different personal things. So as a genealogist, we can find those meaningful in fleshing out an ancestor's stories. Um, but that, the Mighty Chain is, is really a phenomenal document, and it may be daunting to someone at first, but after you recognize the different divisions of the canal and and basically the jurisdictions of the three divisions, the eastern, middle, and western divisions, if you know where you're looking, you can focus in on uh, what you might what you might want to research and and if you get lucky you you'll discover something on your ancestors. Okay. And then in these records, uh, do we also find information on the boatmen and their crew, the packet boats and things like that? Well, we do find a lot more information on boatmen than we do on any of the other canal workers. Um, I think laborers on the older receipts and laborers during the 1850s, boat captains in terms of uh, their ledgers, if the if the boat captain um, was registering his boat, then we have some boat registers that you can find in the in the uh, archives and in the library in the manuscripts collection. The boat registers are great because they will tell you the owner of the boat, when the boat, what the boat's name was, how big it was, what kind of boat it was, and then the date that it was registered. And typically, a boat could last maybe 10 to 12 years, sometimes more if they repaired it several times. And uh, and that has helped sort of isolate a captain where he was. And then the person who owned the boat was not necessarily a captain. So for genealogists, that's a great link because it helps us see the the bigger picture of 
the canal people and their associations with canal town people and business people. And so your family associated with the canal, even if they weren't canalers themselves or didn't dig the canal. But I think one thing that's important for people who have a long history in New York State, uh, you know, long ancestry in New York State to, to recognize is that uh, the canalers were, were stigmatized, obviously, because they were seen sometimes as being a little bit backwards, not well-educated, et cetera. But that wasn't necessarily true. Uh, a lot of those boatmen could read and write very early on. If you look at the passenger list, you'll find that they could spell names that I don't know if most people could even spell today. Um, that was a joke. But <laughs> um, I think that they they kept very very good records and even though sometimes we cannot ascertain who our ancestors were from those passenger lists we can definitely if we have a captain who may have been an ancestor we can find them find out where they were where they were moving back and forth the the two towns or three towns or the length of the canal that they moved passengers back and forth or freight back and forth between um sometimes I think you have to turn to newspapers and obituaries to find more information on steersmen or mule drivers. Basically, you don't find as much documentation on them until later on, like the early 1900s or late 1800s, when people started to see that the canal was uh, was sort of waning and that maybe it was a nostalgic sort of sentiment that, if someone had been a, a boatman or a mule driver on the canal that others may have seen as a lowly position, it was esteemed in some way that, oh, he was once a boatman on the canal. Or uh, even, I think, uh, Garfield, President Garfield, had been a hoggy um, little boy mule driver on the Ohio Erie Canal. So this was, it was sort of like a little a little badge that, that people saw and therefore it was documented later on. But the earlier records, the ones that are at the archives, we, we don't find as much on, on crew. We do find some on way masters, um, the more official records, the people who were commissioned um, and paid by the government. So a bank watcher or um, a towpath, Walker, which was somebody who who walked along the canal to make sure that the towpath was clear, um, the supervisor or superintendent of a certain section of the canal, the, those guys, uh, people who were in charge of money, obviously, people who maintained the canal. So we find things on them, but but not as much on the people who were were transporting goods back and forth all the time, which is unfortunate. Okay, so was eminent domain used in in claiming land? So are we going to find landowners and deeds and court cases uh, regarding the land? Yeah, I think a lot of times if you look in um, the canal, the canal commissioner's records, and and those go back to the 1820s, uh, there are court cases in the names of people who owned land captains of boats who had problems in certain areas, maybe because there was a break in the canal, et cetera, um, that there was damage 
or thing that the state should have taken care of and and then their boat was damaged so they went to court uh i do think that early on and in these are in the canal records you will find names of people who received money from the state because the canal went through their land and then they were paid to do a certain task for example in the mohawk valley i found evidence of old landowners there was a particular man Pollock Freeman who whose family could be traced back to the Mayflower and there he was living uh, along the Mohawk right near the the little canal that had once been on the Mohawk River and then uh and then the Erie Canal and he was paid money to dig a ditch and clear clear some land and um and then later on you find his deed and you find the, the boundary lines of the canal and some of the terms of of his uh, transaction with the state for the canal going through his property. It, it obviously was going to cause problems for farmers because a lot of times it did bifurcate their property and, and therefore they had to build a, a bridge. So the state sometimes paid for a farm bridge to be constructed and you can still find some of those structures, um, the, the survey maps and the uh, plans for those structures at the New York State Archives. And they're pretty fascinating to look at. Okay. So when we're looking at this uh, collection at the New York State Archives, uh, we're, we're also looking at information on the lateral and feeder canals in addition to the Erie Canal? Is that correct? There there are some on the, the feeder and lateral canals, yes. The Shenango, the Shemong, the Black River, um, Seneca and Cayuga. And, and sometimes those documents are intermixed with the Erie Canal documents. So I've, I've looked through some and found, um, you know, someone who was transporting things on the Champlain Canal in a document that was right next to one from the Western Division of the Erie Canal. Um, so in some cases, they're chronological reports or uh, documents or contracts or oaths because a lot of the, uh, the officials had to sign oaths in order to work on the canal. So they may be in intermixed and uh, obviously for researchers that can cause a bit of a problem but at some point uh, I will put together something that remedies that and I'm slowly working on it it's going to be a labor of love obviously okay all right so then we need to know where all of these lateral and feeder canals are as well because we we may be ha- we may have ancestors yeah. by one of these and, and not realize that they could have been involved in the New York State Canal System. Right. And I think it, one of the fascinating things is that you can find boatmen who were navigating uh, all different canals in, in New York State. And uh, I have found some cases of that where a man was transporting goods on the Erie Canal and then you find him along the Shenango and then you find him sometimes down in the northern Pennsylvania Canal, uh, others perhaps taking canal routes from um, taking maybe a steamboat up the Hudson, but then you find them on the Delaware and Hudson Canal or going along the Erie Canal and then at Albany and and, uh, Troy 
Whitehall heading up the Champlain Canal and taking goods to the north. Um, Utica and uh, Oswego, obviously, very important canal towns, Utica, because um, the there were two canals moving through the the Shenango and the Erie Canal. And then at Syracuse, you have um, a lot going up to the Oswego Canal. And uh, at Rome, also the Black River Canal. Then uh, for downstate people, they should look at the Chemung Canal, even though it wasn't in use for very long, because once the enlarged canal came around and boats were expanded. Of course, those boats were too big, too wide to go down the, the narrow Shemung anymore. Uh, but the Seneca and Cayuga was also pretty important. And little little connector canals at the at the southern part of of New York State could could connect some of the canals. So little lateral canals and feeder canals like the ones at Chittenango and Oneida and even in um, the, the I think Nelson area there was a little feeder canal there so those types of things you can find some information on in the archives and uh, again sometimes records of the people who are navigating on boats cash accounts and things like that uh, interesting ledgers and uh, account books um, I like looking at the engineers books because they sometimes list transactions with local people and I think people forget to look at those um, and the engineers journals also sometimes have drawings and I recently just found a map of where I grew up in one of the engineers books from I think it was the 1850s and it actually showed where certain buildings once were and then when I looked at some court records that we're talking about the removal of said buildings. I knew exactly what those buildings looked like because I found them in this engineer's drawing, and those were pretty uh, pretty exciting to to see. So you know, it, it is sometimes like uh, digging for you know gold and finding your little gold nugget, but you can't give up, <laughs> and you have to sort of be systematic about it. Okay, and and before uh, we we move on. Um, just very briefly, tell us the difference between a lateral canal and a feeder canal. Well, the lateral canals were constructed to actually uh, function as a, a place of transportation. So if you think about the Black River Canal, the Shenango Canal, the Shemung Canal, the Seneca Cayuga Canal, the Champlain Canal, um, they were this uh, network of canals, and you could think of it as the Erie Canal being the artery and those other canals being veins. So being able to get things from the Erie Canal to the northern part of New York State and the southern part of New York State, their their transportation, um, the boats operated the same way. They were hauled by mules or horses, and then later there were some steamboats. The lateral, the lateral canals were later sometimes used as feeders, but feeder canals, like uh, the Little Chittenango Canal, helped to let the water in. So at the end of the season, the water was let out and the gates were closed where the, the feeders were. And as you see today, sometimes the water level is very low in the late fall and winter until the spring. And then in the spring, after the canal was cleaned out by a fog gang, the 
the guys who came in and sort of made sure that there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, stuff deposited at the bottom of the canal and dead bodies sometimes. <laughs> so oh. they they cleaned it up and uh, and then the water was let back in. And those little feeders like Chittenango Creek and uh, and some of the the little creeks like the Canisarega or Conahaga or you know the, those are the feeder canals that were helping water uh, access be accessed into the Erie Canal and the other canals. Okay, all right. And then one more question about uh, records uh, be, uh, before we take a break. So we have the townspeople, the the land people, the boat builders, mm-hmm. uh, innkeepers, blacksmiths. Uh, are we going to find those records somewhere? That's a good question. And I think uh, in Canal Town, like Chittenango, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, um, and Schenectady, you will find local local documents that may have been contributed to an archive. So at Chittenango Land and Canal Boat Museum, we do have some ledgers of dock, dry dock owners, canal captains, um, from Durhamville and Chittenango, collections of receipts for boats, um, the ledgers of boatmen and what they were transporting back and forth, diaries sometimes of boatmen and children of boatmen or wives of boatmen. Those types of things are, are of course, you know, invaluable to us. Um, blacksmiths. Sometimes we find records of blacksmiths or what they were building, but again, they may be found in the captain's ledgers. I didn't necessarily find anything kept by a blacksmith himself, but I wouldn't doubt that there are some. Uh, it depends on what people donate. We we often get descendants of canal folk who have uh, ledgers and things that they want to donate to the archives for future generations, often because they just don't know what to do with it or they don't know what to make of the information that's in there. And that that's typical. But, um, you know, I think each each little canal town has something to offer in terms of material. And uh, there are even unturned stones at the the Erie Canal Museum in Syracuse because if you look in their archives there are lots of ledgers and diaries and and uh, other phenomenal things that because there are so many and so few people to go through them they haven't come to light yet but I would say it's like the undiscovered country there uh, and I would say if people wanted to dig that would be a good way a good okay. place to right. go. Okay, and actually, and then one more question before we take a break. So I have ancestors in central and western New York uh, during this period. Maybe the closest to a canal is is 20 miles, and I haven't actually done the research. Am I going to find my mm-hmm. people in, in these canal records if, if that, that distance from the canal? Oh, yeah, you might. Um, I mean, we, we kind of say that anyone within a 25-mile radius of the canal is in the canal corridor and that somehow their lives were influenced or affected by the canal being uh, being near them or them being near the canal, as it were. So I would say if you think about like concentric circles starting from the canal sort of pooling outward, that the farther away perhaps 
the less chance there is for you to find something. But certainly if your ancestors were farmers and maybe they were moving uh, their grains or wheat or or some other crop and uh, and had some connection to a boatman, it's very possible that in the ledger you'll find uh, someone has written, you know, such and such amount of wheat from Mr. Smith in such and such area. And if he's the only one in that place that was a farmer, then it may well be your ancestor. So I, you know, I never say never when it comes to discoveries because when you say that, you you turn around and you find something extremely useful and uh, and surprising in the canal records, and they are replete with surprises. Okay. All right. So on that note, we are going to take a break, and and I do want to let uh, people who are listening live know uh, that uh, we are going to be cut off at the end of the hour, but you can pick up the rest of the interview on demand uh, on Blog Talk Radio. So we will be extending the show by uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Um, So we are going to take a break, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on the third Wednesday of the month. That is November 16th. And our topic is going to be Masons and Masonic Records. My guest will be Alvy Davidson, joining us from Florida. He is a Mason, and so he'll be talking a little bit about the history of uh, the Masons and then also what types of records were generated and what we can have access to. Um, So that will be at 10 o'clock on November 16th. And then our first Wednesday of the month will be uh, December 7th, and that is our New York-related show. And the topic is going to be New York Town Historians. And I will have two town historians joining me, Barbara Russell from the town of Brookhaven on Long Island in Suffolk County, and Nancy Kelly from the town of Rhinebeck in Dutchess County. So we'll be uh, talking about what town historians do, what their roles are, and how they can be beneficial for genealogists. That will also be at 10 o'clock in the morning, and um, again, that will be on December 7th. If you have questions for our upcoming guests, if you have feedback for the show or any uh, show ideas, please contact me. You can find me at janeewilcox.com. And so today we are uh, talking about the Erie Canal and its records uh, with Pamela Vittorio. And Pamela, you've mentioned throughout the show uh, where the records are. We have the New York State Archives uh, for a big chunk of the records Uh, New York State uh, Library Manuscripts and Special Collections for some of the manuscripts, the Chenango Landing uh, Canal Boat Museum. You mentioned the Erie Canal Museum in Syracuse. Are there any other major places uh, and and minor uh, that that, uh, you can direct us to that would have these records? Um, I think that probably Onondaga Historical Society has some interesting canal records that you can't find in other places. They have some boat ledgers, um, photographs, and uh, and letters and diaries. Uh, not a lot, but some that are, I think, uh, useful, meaningful documents. I would probably say the big cities like Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse University has, has some documents. Um, and of course, Local historical societies are always going to be useful because you just never know what people are going to donate and when. And so even if you haven't been to one in five years, I would always say go back or or send a message to uh, a town historian because you just never know what's going to turn up. Like I said, someone found a a photograph of Chittenango Landing in their attic and donated it to us. And without it, we wouldn't perhaps know how expansive that place once was. Okay. All right. And then with the uh, New York State Archive records, for example, are there any all-name indexes to these records? Are we basically Mm -hmm. looking for a needle in a haystack? That's a great question. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, no, that's one of my, I think, labors of love, and it may take me until I'm retired to do it. But uh, I think putting together a list of names of of the people who worked on the canal, at least from the early times until uh, the end of the enlarged canal, would be a useful thing for genealogists and, and constructing a database of lockmasters and boatmen and people who dug the canal, canal commissioners, people who held official positions as opposed to just uh, 
people who were independent. Um, it would be so so useful, and it's it's a very compelling type of project. So and a huge undertaking. So okay, I will I will be working on that. <laughs> All right, and you'll let us know uh, when when oh, you have sure. that. Okay. <laughs> All right, and then um, you are a trustee of the Chittenango Landing Canal Boat Museum. You've talked a little bit about uh, the the landing. What else can you tell us, and and why should we visit? Um, well, first of all, it is one of the only dry dock complexes on the canal. So if you really want to see what it looked like, and we have three bays, so we are rather unusual in that way, but a place where boats were constructed and launched and uh, something that has a very close connection to the early history of New York State and the Erie Canal. Um, we we do have records, and uh, there's wonderful bicycling, as you know, that goes through the towpath. There are lots of things for us to do. We're going to look into having boat launches for kayaking. We do get people who come through and kayak there, but it's a great place. I love volunteering there. I, I help do genealogy and I work on our little newsletters. So um, it keeps me busy when I'm not in New York City. <laughs> All right. And then what is your role as a, a trustee? And and how many of you are there? Um I think we have about a dozen people, and uh, a lot of people have been there for more than 20 years, a couple decades, uh, off and on, working as trustees, putting together educational programs, helping um, build tourism in central New York State and throughout New York State, keeping the canal connections alive. And uh, it's it's a wonderful place, and we really, really enjoy our uh, our site and, and its historic park. Okay. And you mentioned the canal's uh, centennial uh, coming up in 2017. There are some celebrations in the works. Can you tell us what uh, what you know of so far? Well, I think for the bicentennial, New York State is probably going to uh, do a lot, especially this 4th of July. Um, but I do know that throughout the canal with the uh, Erie Canal National Heritage Corridor, the Canal Corps, they have lots of events. We have bicycling in July. We have uh, canal clean sweeps in the spring. Um, we have a canal splash in August. There are going to be even more events coming up in 2017, including more bicycling and, uh, and kayaking and boat launching, symposiums and canal conferences. So I would say most people, if they if they want to celebrate, put your party hat on in 2017, but then keep it on because there will be parties every year until 2025. <laughs> so we've got eight okay. years ahead of us for lots of uh, lots of fun times ahead. Okay. It's great for and New I will York State. It's very exciting. Okay, and I, I will mention too at the uh, New York State Family History Conference this past September, uh, I uh, sat in on one of the public historians. Uh, presentations, and we were having both the genealogists and the public historians uh, collaborating on this conference. And so the State Museum is uh, also going to be uh, commemorating the bicentennial, and there will be an exhibit right. um, at the State mm -hmm. Museum for for 2017. They are okay. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right. So, do you have anything else that you would like to add about the canal, the records, uh, celebrations? Well, I would just say that, uh, you know, people who have never been drawn to the canal 
should perhaps think of 2017 as the year that they break their own ground in their in their family tree because uh, they may be surprised at what they find. And then once you get canal in your blood, it you know it never gets it never goes away. You can't get rid of it. <laughs> I, and actually, and I am new to the Erie Canal. I, I'm I'm a Hudson River, uh, you know. I've, I've been here for uh, like 14 years, and uh, I it just the last two years, I have learned so much about the Erie Canal. Have visited the canal, and uh, just I, I love it. And it is such a rich mm-hmm. part of New York's history. Um, it is. And, it's exciting. It's an exciting place. Yes, yes. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you you speak to groups. Where are you going to be speaking next? Uh, I think I will be doing a couple of workshops in January for Chittenango Landing and a webinar for NYGNB on Erie Canal. Uh, and then sometimes I, I get roped into um, talking at Civil War roundtables and things like that, which is really fun, um, talking about Erie Canal and the Civil War. And I will be talking on women's suffrage, women's suffrage in the canal and roles of women in the Civil War. Um, in the spring, a one for a canal conference and uh, and also for a roundtable. Okay. Do you have uh, like a, a website where we can see where you're speaking? Uh, I actually don't. I do have something in the works, though. I'm hoping I will be able to launch it before the bicentennial. It shouldn't take me 200 years to do it, but you never know. <laughs> Okay, so then if we Google your name, we're going to find you uh, in the promotions of where, wherever you're speaking. Yeah, um, usually. Okay, all right. And then how about articles? You you are doing some articles. Uh, right, I worked on one for the Central New York Genealogy Society Tree Talks in uh, the summer, and I'm going to be working on another one for them for the June issue on women's suffrage in the canal because, of course, we have another uh, centennial is another celebration coming up. So these two things are linked, and uh, we thought that would be a great topic to commemorate two important historical events. Okay, and tell us about the the centennial for the suffrage. Uh, from what I understand, again, the State Museum is also working on a big exhibit for that. Um, I think they have three in the works because there are three things coming up. There's World War One, Women's Suffrage, and the Erie Canal. So they have their hands full. Um, and a lot of places, because of the women's suffrage uh, anniversary coming up, have wanted to promote that along with Erie Canal and to see what links there are. So I'll be doing a presentation at the Canal Conference in Rochester in March on that specific topic. And, and I think it will be great. It's a, it's probably a little known uh, fact that that the canal was, very useful in in spreading the word uh, about women getting the right to vote in um, the early 1900s. Okay, and and then for New York, the 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 centennial is for New York State uh, giving the women mm-hmm. the right to vote in in 2017. Yeah. Okay, all yeah. right, and and as we close, um, will you tell us about your own ancestry? Well, my last name, as you can probably tell, is Sicilian, so. When I did my DNA test, I surprisingly found that I was mostly Middle Eastern and Jewish, not Italian, on my dad's side. Um, I have a maternal grandfather and paternal grandmother who are very old French, Canadian, Quebecois, Fidoirs, and pioneers going way back to the 15th century, and also I'm Celtic. 
So that's where I get red highlights and freckles. Um, Scots, Irish, English, and a little Alsatian German. Oh, very interesting. So what, then yeah. when was when were your first ancestors uh, coming to North America? Well, on the the French Canadians, the they came over. Some were kicked out. Sorry to say, <laughs> France, um, and uh, came over on ship. They were Trudeaus, so I am related to the very handsome Prime Minister. Um, and they came over in the late 1400s, early 1500s, and were there all that time on both sides of my family. And then the Irish immigrants came much later. At the turn of the century, and my Sicilian ancestors didn't come until 1898. Okay. All right. And is there any ancestor uh, who is called out to you? Well, I would say I have a couple, and one of them, one of them is my Revolutionary War ancestor, who was on my dad's side. But I also have one who survived the massacre at Lachine in, in 1689, and so I've kind of been researching her a bit. And then I have a Sicilian ancestor who rose up against the Bourbon dynasty in Palermo in the 1860s and 1830s, sorry. And uh, so those are ones that I've just been really fascinated with. And, and tell us about the ancestors surviving the massacre and, and what the massacre was. Oh, and uh, with the uh, Native Americans in Canada in 1689, well, it's a pretty brutal bloody gory story but um she was fortunate to have escaped it and uh and survived and got away and uh and i'm here today i suppose because of it it's it's not a it's not a story that's probably fitting to end a, <laughs> to end this wonderful conversation on because it is really horrific Okay. Um, All right. But but I do find her fascinating, and I'm sure that uh, it would make a good paper someday. Okay. All right. And and this is the end of our show. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful. Uh, uh, I'm excited. Hopefully someday I'm going to have a chance to see if I have any ancestors who have been associated with the canal um, in in the record. So thank you so much for joining us, Pamela. Oh, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. And if I can help you in any way, let me know who you're looking for. And as I go through records, I always sort of make notes for people. And if I find someone, I'll I'll send it. Send <laughs> okay, it all right. Thank you. Thank you. So sure. this is the forget, Thanks forget, forget me not. Oh, you're welcome. Um, this is the forget me not hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.